where do I start with Jimmy Goddard? First thing I will say is that the man's story is one that puts life into perspective. Without taking too much away from the story that Jimmy tells in this episode, I just wanted to touch on a few bits first here. Jimmy had a colossal accident when he fell off a mountain rock climbing during a holiday he had on break from working for the army. His accident resulted in being paralysed from the waist down. The journey that he went on after that accident is something that is completely, utterly mind-blowing. When I first met Jimmy a few hours before recording this, I was overwhelmed by his positivity and incredible spirit. When somebody has been through something like Jimmy has, it is so easy just to give up. What Jimmy went on to achieve is beyond phenomenal and his perspective on life is something truly special. I will always be thankful for the time I spent with Jimmy at his house. We spoke for several hours before and after this recording and I will never forget my state of mind before and after meeting him. Boys and girls, listen to this episode and really evaluate the way you are living inside your head and what is actually important to you. Jimmy is a true inspiration, so don't miss the opportunity to listen to this story. It is stories like this that are the reason that I started this podcast in the first place. Today's episode is sponsored by Fat Llama. Fat Llama is the fastest growing rental marketplace for stuff in the world. It is a website and app which allows people to rent out their belongings to others nearby, fully insured for cash. Fat Llama users are renting anything from film gear, projectors and PA systems to road bikes and camper vans. The platform is available throughout the UK and US and users are earning up to £3,700 per month. I've been using Fat Llama recently to rent out my podcast recording equipment and I've nearly made back all of my initial investment on those products. I guarantee you will have considerable amounts of stuff lying around your house that you rarely or never use that can be rented out to others for money. Get it onto Fat Llama, guys. For me, it's an absolute no-brainer. On the other side of the coin, how often have you needed something for a brief period of time and haven't purchased the item from a retailer's due to the cost not warranting it? Well, Fat Llama provides the solution. If you go to fatlama.com forward slash r forward slash the inspiration space and sign up, you will get £25 off your first rental. Guys, this is a very, very special episode, so get listening. Just want to say thank you very much for inviting me to your house no and, problem, sure. and all that. Um, Lucy told me a while ago, you know, a little bit about your story. And I jumped to the opportunity to obviously come down here, you know, hopefully have a bit of a cycle. Doesn't yeah, look like yeah, it this yeah, one. It's looking a bit dodgy at the moment. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for our listeners, I think it would be really great. And it's something I always ask everybody I interview, if you could just... You know, give us a little bit of a background on yourself. Um, probably up into about 2004, Mark, you know, where your life obviously took a new direction. That would be great just as a starting point for... An intro. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, so I guess uh, when I was growing up, I was always really kind of active, adventurous kid. Um, mm. My father was was really um, into kind of mountaineering and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and he was a big role model of mine, so... I used to really go heavily into all that sort of stuff, Play, played a lot of rugby, played a lot of sport, all that sort of thing. Um, so when 
I came to leave school. Um, I had a brief dalliance with university, as we discussed earlier, <laughs> but it didn't. It didn't go well. I just didn't like that kind of classroom being stuck indoors environment, and I just yearned to be outside and doing something adventurous. Um, and the obvious choice was the military, because you know back then that was one of the kind of few opportunities to make a regular income yet have a you know an outdoor active adventurous lifestyle yeah yeah um so i actually started off by joining the royal marines reserve when i was 18 as soon as i left school what year was that so gosh that must have been 1996 right um so that's like um I guess it's like Territorial Army Marines. Sure. Um, so you do your commander course over the course of a year, um, every other weekend, and you go on a couple of two-week courses. Um, so, and that was, I, mean, I loved it, actually. It was hard work, but I really loved it. Mm. Um, and all through doing that, I was kind of having a go at university and working for different people, trying to, kind of find my niche as it were. Yeah, what we were talking about is it's hard at that age to really feel like you know what you want to do. It is. Yeah. It is. It really is, isn't it? Yeah, I think uni is almost wasted on people at that age because you come out of school and you don't, you haven't got a clear picture of what you want to do at that point. So I was just kind of trying out different things. But throughout that time, the continuity was the Royal Marines Reserve and I, you know, I loved it and I loved being part of it. So I guess around... The age of twenty-four, I've been doing. I've been in the Marine Reserve for about six years by then, and that was the only kind of continuity in my life. Um, I decided to join full time. I was too old. I think the Royal Marines at that point had a cut off for officers at twenty-four, so I opted to go to Santos, join the army. Um, Good experience, and it was a great experience. Yeah, I mean. It was a strange one because after doing commander training with the Royal Marines, Santos just seems so so easy. It really, like being back at boarding school, what was you know, it's, it just seemed like a bit of a kind of country holiday club. Really, to be perfectly honest with you, um, but I really enjoyed it, and I had made some great friends there, and we had a great time, um, and I learned a lot, um, and it was really good fun. And again, I could carry on with the active outdoor pursuits, played a lot of sport. Went adventure training, loved being on exercise, living out in the woods. Um, that's just what I was all about, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I did really enjoy that time. And then when you get to the end of Santos, you um, have to go through a process of choosing which regiment you want to join. Mm. So to get back into the 3 Commander Brigade, which is the Royal Marines Brigade, I joined the Royal Artillery and then joined the... They've got a regiment within that that works that's basically attached to the Royal Marines and provides their artillery um, so I joined that regiment to get back to 3 Commander Brigade um, and so I had to do the commander course again right this time as an officer um, and it was quite interesting because I kind of thought I was, I was given the choice a little bit as to whether to, I wanted to do it again or not they sort of, sort of said you don't have to because you've already done it before but it would be a good idea to because it would be good to be seen to do it as an officer because there's a bit more pressure put on you. And I thought, yeah, I've done it before. It's no problem. I'll do it again. Uh, no big deal. But the second time around, I found it much harder. Really? Why was that? 
I don't know. I think because I was six years older. Yeah, yeah. And it made me realise just in those, just, you know, 24, you're still a very young man. But just in those six years, your body is a lot less resilient than it's 18, <laughs> which is crazy because you're still a young man, really. Um, so that I found that tougher. Um, but also because I knew what was coming. I knew how hard it was. Um, uh, and it wasn't quite such a big adventure because it wasn't the first time I'd done it. So, it, yeah, I found that really tough. Did it, did it, that experience, all these experiences in the army, have they, have they been, um, have they shaped your values as a person? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think those formative years, you know, you can't help, they can't help shape, shape your values. Um, that's right. <laughs> sorry. My, that's my wife just coming in from a dog walk. Yeah. <laughs> You're probably, we've had, we've had dogs on the podcast before, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, it did. It did. Um, I think. It sounds quite cliche, but it made me really tough. Made of me, course, made me really tough. It was, it was really hard, and it made me really tough, and it made me kind of at times. At times on the commando course, you have to. They talk about compartmentalization and, and like taking things day by day when you're going through a tough period in life. But literally, at times on that course, you're taking things minute by minute because it's so hard. You know, it really is. You can go through. You can be out on exercise for five days and get, you know, we'd compare at the end of the week when we came from exercise how much sleep we'd got and we'd be like four hours, five hours. And I tell that to people now and they assume it's per night and think, okay, well, that's not that bad. But no, that'd be the whole week. So that'd be like four or five hours over the course of the whole week. That's mad. 45-minute birth. Oh, that's my Hello, Storm. 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 <laughs> oh, yeah, really. So you can Sorry, call. I tried, I tried. Can you, can you close the door, maybe? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, that would be literally over the course of the whole week, so it was full on. Um, but, I, but I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So I did that, and then once I completed that training, they sent us all out to Norway to do the Arctic Winter Warfare training. What was that? What? that so I think, I mean, I think that's quite well-renowned. You know, everyone's seen pictures of... Um, of them cutting holes in the ice and, and jumping into freezing water and living in snow holes and things. So it, it is that kind of thing. Basically, you go out there for three months um, and for the majority of it, you're living in tents um, in the up, well up into the Arctic Circle. Um, temperatures drop down to sort of minus 20, 30 at night. Um, when we got out there in January, it was round the clock darkness. You could see the sun just kind of just below the horizon in the middle of the day, but that was it. And then by the time we came home in kind of the end of March, you know, it was 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of night. It was fascinating to watch that process, the change in the season. That must have been an absolutely amazing experience. But it was an amazing experience. It was really, really, really cool. Really, absolutely loved it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Then, uh, so I came back from that, um, did some... Took up my new position up in um, Arbroath in Scotland. So the regiment split between Plymouth and Arbroath on the west coast of Scotland. So ended up up there um, and then was on, on leave on summer holidays um, and went rock climbing in the Gap Peninsula in South Wales, um, just on holiday, as you do, um, and had an accident and some badly placed gear and we kind of wandered off route of it. 
And so the the rocks were, we call it green, they were limestone, they were loose, it, uh, the gear was badly placed and I fell. Mm. Um, uh, and Kate, land, you know, kind of fell about 50 metres odd and landed on the beach below, broke my back. Um, uh, and yeah, big life-changing moment, really. Sure, of course. Of course, and but you know, it's it's barred you onto the journey of a lifetime afterwards. Well, this is it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I always say, you know, people when they talk about it, they I guess they kind of edge around the area. They never really say, "Do you regret going rock climbing that day?" Yeah, you know, they're not as kind of black and white as that, but they they kind of you know allude to that point sometimes. Um, now my climbing partner at the time died in the accident, so. Mm. That is terrible, and that's really sad. And on that, you know, on that account, I absolutely wish I'd never got into rock climbing ever, you know, mm-hmm. because nothing was worth that. But take that away from just for myself. Um, no, I don't regret a thing because, I, you know, I truly believe that kind of not that life's got a path for you, but that I've done some cool amazing things down this avenue and if i carried on down the avenue i was going down i might have done some cool amazing things or i might not you know i might have gone to afghanistan the next year with my regiment when they went and i might have got shot mm-hmm. um, or stepped on an id or, or something completely different so i don't regret anything from that kind of angle but obviously when you're a climbing partner dies of course of course um it, I could, you know, I totally regret that. Sure, of course. I mean, you're very forward thinking. I mean, that's such a great approach to have in life. Um, and, and, you know, after the incident, I mean, what was your kind of mindset in regard to, you know, getting back to, getting back to, you know, life and and how to keep pushing forward? I mean, what, what was what was your mindset at the time? It was an interesting time. Um, Must have been obviously very difficult, but, you yeah. know. It was, it was a really interesting fascinating to kind of look back on because it's one of those things where when you grow up you hear about people in fact I'd had a not a good friend but a when I was going through Marines training um the Royal Marines Reserve my one of my corporals who used to run us ragged on training weekends um really fit bloke he had a car accident and ended up paraplegic same as me same kind of injury and I remember at the time feeling so sorry for him and thinking life's over. You know, if it was me, I wish I'd have died in the car. This is terrible, absolutely terrible. Um, and those kind of things, I think, you know, people do kind of imagine, yeah, what would I do? It'd be awful. But it, but it wasn't, it really wasn't. And it's hard to explain. The worst part of it, obviously, was the death of my client partner. Um, that was absolutely terrible and tragic. And but in a way that spurred me on to to think I've got to carry on. I'm so fortunate to have survived. I can't, you know, I'd be destroying a memory if it broke me and mm. um and I didn't carry on to do anything. So I've got to press on and make something of this. So that was definitely a very big part of it, thinking that I've got to kind of carry on living and carry on doing things for the two of us. Um but also, I remember waking up, and I knew I was paralysed straight away. I, before the doctor had even told me, I don't know how, I just knew. Um, and I remember thinking, this could completely break me. I could end up really going downhill here. Um, and I mustn't let that happen. Mm. 
And I remember that being a conscious decision and thinking, I've got to stay positive. I've got to be forward looking and I've got to think about what I can do now. Um, and I hate to, I know that mental health isn't that simple and you can't necessarily say, um, I can't let this beat me. I can't let this break me. I've got to be positive. And it's not necessarily a decision like that. Um, but for me, it was at that moment. For a lot of people, it isn't. It's not something they can help. Um, but at the time for me, it was. And I think I was in a position to be able to kind of take the positivity that I'd survived what was a life-threatening situation um, and use that to move through rehabilitation. And at Stoke Mandeville, it, interestingly, I kind of found a split of... of it, it was this where you went... Straight yeah, after. Yeah. So, so I after my accident, I um, got scraped up off the beach, put in an air ambulance, and taken to a hospital in Swansea for a couple of weeks, um, where I was in the A and E, you know, kind of mm. my intensity unit, um, because I had a lot of organ damage and I was bleeding a lot, and so they they kept me there under observation to make sure everything was all right. And then as soon as I was stable, they transferred me by ambulance to um, Stoke Mandeville, the spinal unit at Stoke Mandeville, where they did the spinal surgery on me. And then I began the, I think it was about eight months of rehabilitation living in hospital. And I found the people like myself that had had spinal injuries through traumatic, um, traumatic life-threatening accidents actually dealt with the situation a lot better than the people who had ended up paraplegic through, say, an operation that had gone wrong um, or through a disease of their spinal cord or something like that. Um, That's so, interesting. What do you think that is? I think it's that, it's that, um, that kind of near-death experience that people talk about. You know, you, of course. You've heard, we've all heard about people in car crashes who have nearly died and... And they say, right, well, I'm, you know, after that, since then, I've lived life for every minute of every day because I'm just so lucky to be alive. It's that, I think it's that experience, that near-death experience really wakes you up and makes you think, I was sleepwalking through life before this and now I want to make the most of everything. Yeah, of course. Um, and of course you go on to, which is uh, yeah. going to be the next part of the story. But I mean, what was the transition through going through that tricky period yeah. in, in the hospital and then coming out into, you know, general public again? I mean, what was that like as a, as a period of time? The, the hospital are really good at that. Um, that's something that the NHS has really kind of switched on to. Um, I don't know what it's like these days, if they've kind of shortened the period you could have in hospital and um, and whatnot with all the budget cuts. But at the time, you got about eight months in hospital and towards the end of that, they'd start letting you go home for day trips Um and then go home to stay overnight. And they even had a, a little bungalow on the hospital grounds where before you were discharged, they'd put you in there for a couple of nights, fill up all the cupboards with food for you and make you look after yourself, you know, to make sure you could care for yourself for a couple of days. Um, so, you, you know, you were, I was well set up. But it is a scary period because, and especially for me, because people become institutionalised after a year in hospital and not only that, but I'd had the previous four years in the military, so I was very institutionalised. So it was it was a big deal for me to 
um, to come out of that, come out of hospital and suddenly be kind of like on my own. Oh my God, what am I going to do now? Um, but it helped. I'm very kind of task orientated, goal orientated person. And I'd set myself a number of goals before I left hospital. So I kind of left hospital, um, you know, with my feet, you know, run, running really. Absolutely. In a wheelchair, but running. Yeah. Yeah. I hit the ground running and I was ready to go. And I was ready, ready for action. Yeah, ready for action. So it was kind of literally I'd started planning all my next moves before I le- left hospital. So it was it was putting them into action really. It's fascinating. It really is. And, and we'll get on to it, but, but I believe it was a year and three days after your accident you completed your first triathlon. Yeah, it probably was actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd not actually um, calculated it, but yeah, it that's unbelievable. Been, it would have been. Yeah, yeah, it would have been a year and three days. And then that brings us. I mean, sport. Like you're talking about uh, goals and setting yourself goals. That's why I, I love sport, and, and I'm sure that's why you love sport mm. because it has the ability to give a human being. If you set yourself a, 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 cha- a physical challenge, it gives a human being that sense of real drive and something to work towards and that's why i love it i mean so obviously sport played a huge part in getting back to normal for you i suppose yeah i did and i think um i think there's loads of different aspects to life that have that i think for some people it's music Mm. for some people it's um art Uh, but for a lot of people it's it's sport and pursuits and for me that's what i was into and that's that's what drove my rehabilitation really um, I remember getting my first hand bike, um, uh, which is a device that you you cycle with your arms, basically. Um, whilst I was still in hospital, and I'd keep it on the ward, and the nurses were always tripping over it and, <laughs> you know, swearing at me and saying, can you move this bloody thing? We can't have this on the hospital. And I'd go, whilst still in hospital, I'd take it out and go cycling around the local estates on that. Um, and it's, it's the outdoors, it's the fresh air, um, it's goal having something to work towards Mm. Mm. and getting back to a sense of normality as well because i'd always competed in triathlon um so getting back it was saying right i can still do this i just need to think about doing it in a different way um but i can still do the things i enjoy and that was really empowering really empowering um rather than lying in a hospital bed thinking i can never do anything that i've been into again thinking and my dad was part of that. I'm hmm. um, thinking I can, I can still do these things. I've just got to do them in a different way. I remember my dad came to visit me one day and he picked up a magazine in the waiting room. It was a Spine Ninjas magazine. And it was an article about a guy, and I forget his name now, um, but he'd ridden a, like a specially adapted off-road hand cycle up Mount Fuji in Japan. And my dad had read this, and he's, he's obviously a bit of a mountaineer in his past. And I'd loved climbing mountains, um, and we, we're both very like-minded. And he brought it in. And he showed it to me. He said, "Jimmy, check this guy out. This is this is pretty cool. Why don't you know? Let's get involved. Why don't we do something like this together?" I was like, "Yeah, that's cool." So that, and that's what I mean. Before I even left hospital, I already had these plans. I'd enrolled on to university to do a sports science degree, which is actually something I'd always wanted to do. Um, I'd started planning for this mountain adventure with my father um, and I'd started training for the, my first triathlon. So 
I had all these things on the go before I left hospital, which which was brilliant because when I left, it just meant I just carried on and had more time to put into these ventures. So cool. So cool. I mean, do you think, um, there's a couple of things I want to touch on there. So do you think um, being in the army, do you think that kind of helped uh, this part of your mind, like setting yourself goals, competitive goals? Do you think that probably stemmed from the army? Was that childhood or? Yeah, it's hard to know which comes first. Yeah. The egg, isn't it, of it really? It's kind of hard to know. I think it always, as a kid, I was like that. I think my dad's like that. I think my mum's like, I think my whole family's like that mm, to an extent. Mm. Um, so I think that's ingrained in my personality. Um, and I think people like that are drawn to the armed services. Yeah, of course. Um, and then I think the armed forces training is very good at bringing it out of you and distilling it and, you know, making it more so. Um, so I think it's probably a combination of both, definitely. Interesting. Interesting. And then yeah. what the armed forces does give you to a large extent is the resilience to um, basically to not give up, you know, once yeah. you've started on a certain course of action, um, uh, to just see it through, see it keep through. going, keep going, keep going, whatever setbacks along the way, sure. keep going. And, and let's, the triathlon, you know, the first one you did after the accident, I mean, what was the training like for that? Was it obviously an extremely different experience to training for, for, for uh, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was very different. And that's part of what I loved about it because it, it wasn't comparing like for like. If I'd been comparing directly, you know, cycling, but now I'm cycling a lot slower, it would have been, um, you know, quite demotivating. But because I was doing things in a very different way, I was pushing a manual wheelchair rather than running. Um, so it's a completely different thing, really. So you couldn't compare it. It was a different challenge. Um, but I remember, I think I went round in like five hours or something. Crazy. And then within a few years, I'd got that time down to about two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah. It was, wow. So that's fun. It was just literally getting around. Completely new challenge. Completely new challenge. And I'd, I'd always been a swimmer. As a kid, I was one of these guys that I had a swimming scholarship to Millfield. I was one of these guys that got up at five in the morning to go swimming before school every day. Um, so I'd always been a big swimmer. Swam for the army. Um and I'd always been a very, very good swimmer. So it was shocking when I got in the water and I basically couldn't swim again um, because your legs sink, um, got no control of your limbs. So you just end up kind of in a standing position. Um, so it was quite hard to get my head around that and figure out a way of being able to move in the water again. Um, but I did slowly. The first triathlon I did, um, I didn't, you know, obviously swimming was difficult. I struggled through, but... By the end of my triathlon career, I'd kind of figured out a way of, of swimming efficiently again. Of course. What was it like finishing that first triathlon? It must have been yeah, euphoric. It was, big, it was a big moment, and I had a lot of mates doing it with me, actually. Um, really? So that was really nice. So, yeah, I had probably about 10 mates all got together, and most of them non-triathletes. They just wanted to do it to come and support me. Um, so it was really euphoric, and it was it was London Triathlon, so it's a big, big event. And it was a big deal. And it was a big day. Yeah, it was really cool. That's fantastic. Um, so, obviously, you, you touched on uh, when your dad brought you that magazine with the guy that uh, went up Mount Fuji. Mm. That obviously stimulated your... Well, I don't know. I was going to ask you what your most... Later in the podcast, you know, what your f- biggest challenge for you was. Mm. But I'm assuming that Kilimanjaro, your trek of Kilimanjaro, is probably up there with one of the hardest things you've ever done and obviously something you're most proud of. I'm fascinated to hear the whole 
kind of journey of how, firstly, you know, how this kind of came into your mind. Well, you told us. Yeah. Secondly, the training. And thirdly, I want to hear everything about the experience itself because it just must have been a most incredibly euphoric, I'll use that expression again, Yeah. experience. Yeah, it, was, it, it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy now. When like was it, it, first of all? So that was 2006. Right, okay. Two years after my accident, which is far too soon, looking back on it, to be doing something like that. I didn't even really know my own body again by that point. I was still getting to know how things worked. Um but I was just so motivated and keen to be moving forward that I wanted to drive on with it. Um, but yeah, yeah, looking back on it, that was a really crazy time and a crazy thing to do, but a lot of fun. Um, and I think what it gave me is it gave me that sense of teamwork and kinship and adventure that I'd lost after leaving the army. So basically myself... My two best mates from the from the military, um, my dad and my physiotherapist all got together and planned this thing. Um, and the idea was, the, the kind of mission, the goal we set ourselves was to get to the top of Kilimanjaro. The reason we chose Kilimanjaro is because it's the highest hiker's summit in the world, meaning that there's no technical ascent to it. Um, obviously, as soon as you've got any kind of technical ascent, rock climbing, you either need to use your legs or find a way of, you know, carrying up pulleys, harnesses, all sorts of crazy equipment to the top of the mountain. So that was kind of a no-no. So it's the highest hiker summit in the world. And my dad, my father, had lived out there for 10 years and he'd already climbed the mountain half a dozen times. So he knew it really well, um, which was a big help. Um, so we set this challenge, got our little team together of people we'd do it with, and then it was kind of a process of finding the equipment that was enable us to make it happen. Um, so we got in touch, we looked at the Mount Fuji article again, um, looked at the piece of equipment that he used, um, and it was being manufactured just outside of Boston, America. If you could, yeah, what was it? What, just for people to, what uh, yeah. was it? What was the equipment? It was it's like a ramp? It's essentially, it's like a mountain bike, but on three wheels, and you're in a kneeling position, um, quite low down, pedalling it with your arms, um, and crucially, as opposed to a normal road hand cycle, where the, the power, the drive wheel is on the front wheel, on this, the drive, the drive wheel is the back wheel. So that as you're going uphill, when the weight's all on the back wheel, you don't start losing traction. Um, there's some cool pictures of it on the internet. You've got to, you've got to check it out. It's really, in, you know, it's a, it's a good bit of kit. It's a good bit mm. of kit. Um, and it was amazing. We went out there, trialled one. It was really good. Um, so I bought one, got it shipped back to the UK, started training on it. Um, and it was, you know, it was pretty obvious. It could handle just about any terrain. I'd cycle through kind of streams, rivers, you know, half a metre deep on that. Um, it was just incredible. Go through mud, um, the steepness of slope. There was really nothing it couldn't handle because there was the gearing on it. It had um, two mountain drives, meaning it quartered the ratio of gearing. So for every metre you moved along the ground, you'd only pedal a quarter of a metre circumference. So it meant you could get really steep stuff, basically until it started tipping backwards over on itself. 
Um, but the only thing, what it, the kind of failing point of that was that once you started hitting anything loose and started losing traction on that back wheel, um, so that was a big problem. That's something we had to um, had to adapt and learn to overcome because at the top of Kilimanjaro, there's a 1,000-meter scree slope uh, made up of volcanic ash. So we knew, we knew that we wouldn't be able to get traction on this, so we had to come up with a system to enable me to, to cycle over it. Um, and what we did, we we came up with a system of ladders, basically. Um, and we got ladders and we got a local engineer to weld aluminium strips up the middle of the ladders um, to make like, a, I mean, basically like a train track, mm, mm, um, mm. Like, a, like a mobile train track that is lightweight um, and that's my support team, um, Goose and Johnny, because just lay up the mountain for me. We had three ladders and I'd, when we got onto that free slope, I'd be cycling over one. They'd take the one at the back, run it to the front. Did you practice on these before you went over? Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, we did. We practiced yeah, yeah. on them, yeah. Um, obviously, no matter how much you practice, you go out there and you find things. You, of things course, you yeah, yeah. You had to like adapt. The ladders kept slipping back down the mountain as I, was, <laughs> as I was getting over them. So we had to kind of peg them in place. Um, but it worked. You know, the system worked really well. It was slow going. But it worked really well. Sure. Right. So, I mean, the experience itself, itself, I mean... Incredible, yeah. Yeah, it must have, it just must have been, it must have been knackering. Let's be honest, let's break it down. It must yeah. have been so tiring. Yeah, I mean... Challenging. So, coming back from it, I was I was in bits for quite a long time after recovering. Mm. And I think two years later, I wanted to try and re- repeat it and do it again. But um, I started training for it. And it, it was at that point... When I was training for it again in the Brecon Beacons, which is where I did the training for the first one, and I thought, no, I'm not doing this again. This is too hard. Yeah. And at, at that point, I'd realised what a big challenge it was the first time. Amazing. But when when these things are fresh and they're new, and it's the first time you've done them, you know, it's amazing what you can put yourself through. Yeah. To train for it. Um, but coming back to do it a second time, I was like, no, done it. I'm not doing it. Again. <laughs> I've done it once. What, what were you eating during during that that challenge? I mean, and the training. I mean. I find that side of things very fascinating. Uh, I think, I mean, diet was was a big learning curve for me in hospital on that sort of subject because I'd gone from eating 5,000 calories a day, Mm. you know, commando training and living in the Arctic and, you know, doing all this stuff to basically, well, I was paralysed from the chest down. So um, I had the metabolism of kind of like a, you know, a... A six-year-old, six-year-old girl, really, because my functional body mass was so small. Um, so that was a massive learning curve to get your head around, um, having to having to manage and be really careful what you eat. Um, and there are everyone, you know, all the healthcare professionals drum that into us from the word go, whether it's my local GP or the educators in the hospital itself, all said. Just be careful now because a lot of people, a lot of paraplegics in wheelchairs put on a lot of weight really quickly after their injury because... The lack of activity. Lack of activity, you're just mm. out there all day and, you're, mm. and your resting metabolism is so much lower. Mm. Um, and as soon as you start putting on weight in a wheelchair, life becomes really, really difficult because um, you're transferring yourself, you're pushing yourself um, and then you become 
dependent on an electric chair, on carers, you can't transfer yourself, and it's just a vicious circle. Of course. And then you get all the secondary diseases associated with that, um, which are very common amongst paraplegics because you don't, don't necessarily get enough exercise, they're overweight, mm. um, and you get all this sort of secondary diabetes, heart disease, all that kind of thing is really prevalent. So that was really drummed into us at the time. Look after yourself, manage your diet, manage what you eat, try and get exercise. I saw that this morning when you having your breakfast. <laughs> very healthy. I'm very, very healthy. healthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's great. Um, and there's and with paraplegia as well, there comes a lot of other secondary um, health issues. Mm. So that that's been a, when people say to me, "What's the biggest part about being in a wheelchair?" I it's always it's not what you see. It's not this guy's in a wheelchair; he can't walk. That is not an issue. That is so easily overcome, you know. Pavements have all got drop curbs. If they don't, I can just do a wheelie off the curb. That's no problem. My house is all flat. I use a lift. Being in a wheelchair is the easiest bit about being a paraplegic. It's the stuff people don't see that is that is hard work, like having to really look after yourself because you're, you're prone to um, a poor immune system and prone to lots of infection and abscesses on you know on the kind of non-functioning parts of your body because mm. there's not enough blood flow um you know it's taking an hour two hours to have a shower and get changed you know after a bicycle ride or whatever it's keeping your legs warm when you're going out cycling um it's all those little it's, it's having your eye on the ball the whole time sure to stay healthy um eating the proper things to support you in that it's all those little things it's not the um, this guy can't walk, it must be terribly sad. Mm, that's kind mm. of public perception of it when they see you. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's that's yeah. nothing in comparison to all the rest of it. And the grand spectrum of it. Yeah. yeah. I often say, say to my wife when we go on holiday and we come back from holiday and people are like, oh, have you had a good holiday? It's so relaxing and all that. And it's like, it's not It's not really, although I, lo- you know, I love it, I love going cycling somewhere else and doing different things. Um, it's never really a holiday for me because having paraplegia is like it's like a full-time job being disabled in that sense um, it's just having paraplegia somewhere else you know? yeah. so it's great fun but I'm still I'm still on the ball I'm still thinking about what I'm doing I'm still looking after myself if anything it makes it slightly harder because in your in your home you have a routine and that mm. you know exactly what you've got to do each day exactly. and you're in a new environment I'm assuming it might make it more difficult yeah it does absolutely yeah it does so if anything it does make it harder and and that's when the secondary complications start and I get ill you know um, so that that you know that's the most that's the hardest thing about living with disabilities the bits people don't see and the and the assumptions people make you know maybe you know why is this, this guy working full time or you know why does he take two hours to get ready or whatever it might be. Um, sure. They don't realise the extent to which you have to look after yourself and uh, and keep your you know, keep your head in the game and keep on the ball with it. Yeah. It's, it's really it is like a full time job. You do seem extremely on the ball though, like <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean it, I've learned to, I've learned to be of course years, habit. You know, it's I've, just habit, I'm assuming. It's become habit. Yeah. Um and it and it didn't happen automatically. It didn't happen overnight. It took a long time. Sure. Took a long time, a lot of periods of ill health, a lot of time in and out of hospital, a lot of seeing friends of mine that I went through hospital with and have done sports with, um, going back in and spending a year 
and more in hospital with complications and thinking, I do not want to go down that route. Mm. Um, it took all of that for me to kind of learn this stuff. I mean, a year, just over a year ago, I was facing shoulder replacement surgery in my left shoulder because as part of my accident, the rock climbing accident, I knocked it out of place and obviously using it a lot um, and it deteriorates and I've got really bad arthritis in it. Um, so I was facing a shoulder replacement operation and, and that was just kind of like, I guess that's the lowest point I got after my injury in that I'm going to have shoulder replacement operation. I'm going to be laid up for six months after. I'm then going to have to rehab it. I'm then going to have to really look after it because I don't want to have to have another one two years later. Sure. Um, and I'd seen friends of mine having shoulder replacement surgery and other kind of types of surgery because, you know, they'd been in a wheelchair for 10 years and they were starting to age with it. And, and I really thought... I was looking after myself anyway, but that's when I kicked it up to a new level and thought, right, this is it. I'm not going to have shoulder replacement. I'm going to try everything else first. Um, and I really kind of got my diet on point, um, made sure I wasn't exercising to compete and to smash it anymore, but exercising for health benefits, mm. um, to keep healthy and fit and to be a good husband and to be be able to do stuff with my friends rather than just win races. Sure. Um and so I made a lot of changes about a year and a half. Shifting mindset in terms of in terms of your exercise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and just to support your life and your health. And mm. to be honest, touch words, my the arthritis of my shoulder has cleared about ninety percent. Um I'm not looking at shoulder replacement surgery anymore. Um my surgeon says that so long as I keep using it and exercising it there's no reason why i necessarily will ever have to have it done it's fantastic um, and, it, and it's just and i've been ill a lot less as well so wow. it just shows the power of, of looking after yourself yeah of course i mean you talked about um training you know very you know in a competitive fashion i mean mm. so after kilimanjaro was, was there a lot of competing in terms of triathlon and, and all that and other events as well in that period yeah so so before kilimanjaro it was all about killing it was all about yeah i wasn't really interested in paraplegic you know disability sport or stuff sure um it was all about focusing training for killy i had a road handbike to to train and prepare for killy as well um, it was all about that. Coming back from Kili, I was buzzing. It's like, right, what am I going to do next? Um, <laughs> Once again, you're looking yeah, for new goals. Yeah. I love that. Looking for new yeah. goals, and I thought, right, I'm going to, I'm going to get back into this para triathlon, but I'm going to, you know, do it in a big way this time. Not, mm. not just kind of black my way around it like I'd done a year after leaving hospital. I want to become competitive, um, and I also wanted to get into hand bike racing um, and become competitive at that. So. That's what kind of started me down those pathways. Amazing, amazing, and you—you've obviously enjoyed it. I mean, yeah, loved it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely loved it. When I when I started with the paratriathlon, it was really early days for it as a sport. Um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a Paralympic sport. Um, uh, there were world championships, so it was mm. kind of like an international sport. But there weren't many people doing it, um, and it was it was essentially just a group of guys and girls around the country, around the world that did it because they loved it and they enjoyed it. And mm. we kind of we kind of made it up as we went along and we kind of cobbled it together and 
how how the transitions work. How are you going to get from one piece of equipment to another quickly? Because you're still the clock's still running. Sure. How are we going to do this? And there were no role models to look at because we were kind of the first wave of people going through, really. Um, and we kind of made it up as we went along, and it was really good fun, and it was a really good journey, and I loved it. I loved traveling, you know, from country to country, racing. Um, got to know a good group of people, and it was really interesting. Um, and then came the the news after I've been doing it for probably three or four years. Um, the big news that the Paralympic Committee had taken it on as the new Paralympic sport. Um, for then, this was back in 2010, 2011 maybe. Um, they'd taken it on not for London, but for the Rio Olympics in 2016. And that changed the landscape of the sport entirely. You know, we were all really excited about it at the time. Um, and it was a massive boost for mm. the sport. Obviously, suddenly a lot more funding came into it. There were governing bodies. Um, there was funding. Um, I could give up. I gave up work and became a full-time athlete for a number of years. Um, and so there, there were kind of positives and minuses to it. But, but for me, overall, it kind of detracted from the sporting element of it because it wasn't about doing it for the enjoyment anymore. It was doing it to keep my, everything I was doing because I was a funded athlete was about keeping my place on the squad. And there was a lot of pressure that came with that. Um, but I guess it's kind of, you know, swings and roundabouts. And, and I was very fortunate to be able to have, be a funded athlete for a number of years. Of course, of course. I mean, I, I say this every time I do a new podcast. <laughs> I'm completely like a sponge. I'm absorbed, so absorbed in yeah, the conversation. Yeah. And like, I, I think I actually enjoy each podcast more and more as I do it. And I, I, this has been fascinating. Um, it's been just so great to to hear your story. And it is really, honestly, like, I know it's the, it's called the inspiration space and it might sound cliche, but it really is so inspiring just to, to hear your journey. Um, as we come to the end of it, I would, every episode, I always ask the same two questions. Yeah. Um, firstly, I mean, I would love to obviously know, you know, what's next for you. Um, I know you're not, is you know, competing isn't, mm. the, isn't everything to you every, uh, now, obviously, you know, you're looking after your health and you're prioritizing other things, but you know, is there anything on the radar? I know we've chatted about the Invictus games. I don't know if we can talk about that or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I guess for the last year, as I've been kind of getting back to good health again, and the rest of it, it's, it's been about cycling for enjoyment, cycling for health, getting back to, instead of competing, getting back to cycling with my friends. Talking about cycling. It looks like it's it stopped raining. <laughs> we're, we're about to head out for a cycle, so we've got half an eye out the window <laughs> um, checking for the rain clouds. Um, last year, I went up, cycled up Col de Tourmalet with a very good friend of mine, um, Sam Cates, and also my wife and some other guys. Um, so it's been about that kind of thing. This summer, we're cycling up. Um, sorry, last summer, Mont This summer, Col de Tourmalet. So it's more about having fun with it. Mm. Um, but also... I went along to the trials for Invictus Games two weeks ago, um, which I absolutely loved the whole ethos of it and the atmosphere about it. And it was all the best bits of sport without some of the negative pressures that I found associated around Paralympics for. So I absolutely loved it. So I think I will. And it kind of got that urge within me to, to start competing again. 
but to a you know to a balanced degree and not for it not to be all about the competition but for it to be about the enjoyment about the taking part about the camaraderie and it was all those things at the Invictus Games trials so I really bought into it and I find out and I think about two weeks I've got a place or not so fingers things, crossed fingers crossed yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so we'll see how that one goes I'm buzzing. I really, really hope you get it. I'd, yeah. I'd love to. It's in Australia. I would love to say I'll fly out and watch you. <laughs> You'll have to come out and do a podcast out there. Yeah. Sounds good. Any, any excuse to go out there? Any Sydney, is it? Sydney, Australia. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. a dream. I love it out there. Yeah. Just being recently. It would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, and for me, to be brutally honest, not because it's in Australia, I just, I, I, you know, that's a kind of bonus, but I love the atmosphere of it. Mm. And I love the positivity of it. Mm. And I mean, just one little example. I was there and there was a guy, I was, you do, you do your competitions sort of on one day and, and, you know, we had a road race and a time trial. And then the next day you go back in and do your, your registering and get fitted up for kits and all that. And I bumped into a guy there and he was in a queue for something and he was, he just looked in bits. Um, and I started talking to him and he started crying. And he, and he said, I think I'm going to have to go home because um, there's too many people. And it was clear that this guy was suffering from some sort of post-traumatic um, syndrome. And uh, this was a, re- a really big deal to him. You know, this was the first time he'd been out of his house in such a busy environment. Um, so I just chatted to him. And then I went and got one of the Invictus Games ambassadors and introduced them. And the Invictus Games ambassador then kind of chaperoned him around the whole day and all the things he should do and helped him navigate it all because it was too much overwhelmed for him. And I saw him at the end of the day as I was leaving and he said, and he was still, firstly, he was still there. He hadn't gone home. Secondly, he had a big smile on his face and we chatted and he'd had a really great day meeting people. And I thought, that is what it's all about and that's what I want to be part of. It's really the racing, all that side of it is great, great fun and it's good to do well and get all the medals, whatever. But actually, it's being part of that and it's being part of people's journeys and and seeing people it's amazing just improve and um and and take stuff away from it it's amazing it really is yeah i mean i mean, i've watched invictus games a few times and it's just it seems like such a fantastic event amazing mm. to be a part of so yeah touch wood fingers crossed, fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. right last uh Last question, just for hopefully we go out and have a cycle. Yeah. In the trial, <laughs> as soon as we finish, it's going to start pissing with rain. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, I started this podcast uh, nearly a year ago. God, it's been. I met some incredible people in that time. But you know, the reason I started it is because I, I was in you know my early twenties. After leaving university, I was extremely lost as an individual. Didn't really have much of a direction, and it triggered you know a lot of anxiety and a bit of depression at the time so that's actually the reason i started the inspiration space is to kind of give people in their 20s and 30s an outlet to listen to amazing stories become inspired and you know really go off in a new direction with a new drive and passion so i mean a question i ask everyone is you know if you had one piece of advice for somebody in their 20s and 30s who are a little bit lost looking for direction you know what would that one piece of advice that be? Is a big, that's a it's big a big question. question. <laughs> that's a big question, isn't it? If you had gosh. one piece, one piece. Gosh, I, I used to go to schools and that still do occasionally and do a lot of work with, with kids and presentations on Kilimanjaro, Paralympics, motivation, goal setting, all that sort of thing. Um, and I've also got a lot of experience with, with mental health because my wife's got um, 
bipolar. She's always struggled with depression. And about two, three years ago now, she was actually, um, you know, they put the label of bipolar, which which was very hard to get our heads around at the time. And now we're used to it. So it's something that we're really aware of on a daily basis. And to distill all of that experience that I've had with mental health um, and with working with kids in schools into one piece of advice is really challenging, really challenging. Um, and I think, I think probably, yeah, I think it'd probably be be yourself. Mm. I think it would be after, after kind of like the honesty and the, um, and the confidence to, to be who you want to be. Um, especially in your early twenties, you're an adult, you're an adult by then. Um, don't, don't be what your parents want you to be. Don't be what your mates want you to be. Don't get caught up in that London bubble or that wherever it is bubble if you're local. You know, to have the confidence to branch out there and do what is important to you. And I think um, tying up kind of mental health and being lost and all the rest of it, I think that one piece of advice kind of encapsulates all of that um, and, and kind of be true to yourself and, you know, don't compromise on that. Brilliant. Love it. Love it. It's funny. I get a different answer every time. What other, what other answers have you had? Um, you? Well, no, I mean, they, they are all kind of interlinked. Yeah. Do you know course. what I mean? They yeah, are yeah. interlinked, but they're all so true. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like I hear something, I'm like, God, that's so true. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, you know it, they are also interlinked. I'm always really wary in schools when I kind of, you go, to, you go down that route of kind of giving advice. Yeah. Advice can be a dangerous it thing. It can be a very divisive yeah. thing. Yeah. Depending on, you know, you say to people, you've got to set yourself a goal and work towards it. Mm. If you're talking to someone that's suffering um, yeah. with kind of moderate depression in schools, which a lot of kids are these mm. days, setting yourself a goal can be a really difficult Daunting thing. Daunting task. Yeah. I completely so, agree. I mean, I, I should I should actually rephrase this question, really. I mean, advice, can, yeah, like you said, can be slightly dangerous. And depression or anxiety is so unique to that person it yeah, changes yeah. it's different for everyone isn't it it's got to be it's got to so, so advice such has got to be either be tailored for that individual or the, or, or kind of coaxed out of them yeah so you're from it, your personal experience or yeah, yeah that's the way so they're true. giving it to themselves but yeah but no i think i think it's a good question i think stick with it i think or the one lesson you've learned maybe yeah good way there we go it. the one lesson i've learned that I wish in my early twenties I'd had the confidence. Yeah, to, your personal lesson. To, That's to, right. To be you know who I wanted to be. It's been really, really, really great to, to chat, Jimmy. Um, I honestly have enjoyed it so, so much. Yeah. Um, and this, I'm quite humbled to be on it. To be honest with you, oh, you've got so. some big names on on the podcast now. It's, you've done some incredible things. Um, like everyone else on the show. I mean, I'm so glad to have had the chance to get your story. So I really appreciate it. No problems. And hopefully we we'll go have a cycle. Yeah, yeah, have a cycle and maybe, and fingers crossed, maybe we'll do a podcast in Sydney. You never know. Yeah. Never know. When is it? Know, when know. is it? October. 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 End of October, November. Wow. Well, if, if I've got a free week, I'll come out and watch you, mate. <laughs> Guys, I really hope you enjoy this one. It's an absolute cracker. Um, Jimmy's story is fantastic. And if for some reason you've tuned in at the end, wind back to the beginning and listen to it from the start. Have a great day.